Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw the faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Thank you so much. <clears throat> At this time, we'll uh, dismiss the little ones to go to our junior worship time. <clears throat> and while they're going, um, I have passed out to several of you um, a little white card like this. Um, right now, if you did not receive one of these, now every individual in the house doesn't have, but at least if there's a mom here, we want it to go to the mom because they're more responsible in filling stuff out. Um, if mom's not here, then give it to a dad. So if you would raise your hand, if you did not get one of that, I've got some helpers that are going to get you a card. Guys, if you see a hand up, um, what we're trying to do is um, with me, a couple over here, with me being new, we're trying to get information on everybody, okay? I want to get to know all of you. I want to get to know where you live. I'm probably going to try to come see you, so I, I need to know that information. There's one over here that's needed, guys. Somebody over here needs one. Um, and so please, if you, this is the only time I'm going to give you permission to do something else during the sermon, okay? Um, so if you, you'll take time to fill that out right now, and then when the offering comes around, if you drop it in, that would be super helpful for us, and we can get all of our up, files up, great, updated and everything, and so we know who everybody is, um, which is huge for me. Because as you can tell, I've got a lot of names to learn. God bless those of you that just say your name when I walk up to you. That's just a wonderful thing. Thanks. Appreciate you back there. Um, so uh, we're, we're glad to be here again this morning. Um, I just want to say just a little bit as we begin. We're, we've been talking through this idea of mantra. Um, a mantra, uh, and I think we've got a slide on that. They're just a few words that remind us of important things. A mantra can be something that, that keeps you going when you're running, if, if you're getting tired or, or uh, when you're working on your golf swing. Remind yourself to go slow on the backswing, whatever it is. But they remind us of the truth. And what we've done in this series about mantra is we've taken spiritual truths that come right out of the Gospels. We're not making these up. These are not just some good ideas that we found in a book somewhere. These are right out of Jesus' own mouth. And so uh, these mantras will help inspire and motivate us and challenge us and give us direction. And so the first several motive, uh, mantras that we've talked about, we started with, somebody tell me the first one. Be the branch. Somebody said it. Way to go. We didn't have to throw anything. Be the branch, which means that we're going to stay connected to the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Anyone who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. So we want to stay connected to the vine. And we want to tell ourselves over and over again, remind ourselves to keep us focused. We're just a branch. We're not the vine. We're just the branch. The second mantra was what? Last week we talked about. 
catch the wind. And the idea there was the Holy Spirit wants to move us. And the Holy Spirit is equal with wind in the Bible, Old Testament and New. And what we want is to be led not by, well, I had a good idea. Or, I saw this on a movie once. We want to say, okay, are we going to do what we see from the world is a good idea, or are we going to follow what the Holy Spirit says? And so our goal as we move forward, beginning in January this year, in a new decade, a new phase of, of church life with us coming on board, we want to say, let's only follow the Holy Spirit's leading. If the Holy Spirit, if the wind blows us to, to do this, or begin this, or stop that, Let's listen to the Holy Spirit and let's trust that He knows better where we need to be going than we do, right? Can I get an amen? All right, thank you. Um, So this morning we come to the third mantra, and the third mantra is wreck the roof. Wreck the roof. We heard the the short passage. I'm going to give a little fuller version of that, but you know the story. You've heard this story probably a hundred times if you grew up in church about the four men who brought their friend who was crippled or lame from birth and, and, and brought him to Jesus and they couldn't get in. And so that's the story we're going to look at. You know, and, and when I, uh, wrecking the roof, uh, in doing this, we're going to find that sometimes doing what God calls us to requires us to be bold and to take risks. Not always is it going to be safe, but God's going to call us to do things that may be out of our comfort zone. I think you'll see that in the story as we go through this morning. And it's also going to cause us maybe to think outside the box. If you don't know my wife very well yet, she will tell you that she doesn't know where the box is. She likes to live outside the box. She wants to be as far away from the box as normal. I think sometimes we've gotten used to the box that we have created for ourselves and I think Jesus is going to call us to push the boundaries of that. And let's maybe look outside the box a little bit. Luke 5 is one of the greatest stories from the life of Jesus. This is one of those stories that I'm like, I really wish I could have been there for that one. I, you know, there's a lot of stories like that. I would have loved to have seen Lazarus raised from the dead. That would have been cool. But this is one of those stories where I'm like, man, I wish I could have seen that. And just to see what took place in this whole story... As we look at this this morning, I want you to think as we read through, we're going to see some different characters in the narrative. I want you to ask yourself, who am I? Who am I in this narrative? Am I, am I the one that's willing to go the distance to bring my friend to Christ? Or am I the one that's in the crowd? And if I'm in the crowd, how do I respond when something crazy happens like the roof starts caving in? So I want you, as we go through this, to mull that question over in your mind. Who am I in this story? Because I'm fairly certain that each one of us has to associate with one of these characters. And we will find ourselves in this story. This story takes place in a podunk little town. Capernaum is a podunk town. They don't have any stoplights. Just a couple years ago, they put stop signs in. There's only one convenience store where you can buy gas um, and and get a soda. Um, And, and, you know, the traffic is horrendous there. Uh, No, it's not. I think the town was a lot like Galesburg, (laughs) if you didn't catch the gist already. It was a country town. 
People grew up hunting and fishing and riding their motorcycles in the streets when they weren't supposed to. So I've heard some of that happen. But thank goodness the mayor grew up and became the mayor, and so he changed that law. So that's awesome. <laughs> but can you picture the scene? You're looking at this house, and probably in the driveway there's a bunch of pickup trucks, and, and uh, maybe there's some nice cars from out of town because, you know, they heard about what happened with Jesus. He had just, you know, in the story right before this... He had just healed a leper. That didn't happen in this part of the world ever. You just, when you got leprosy, you died of leprosy. And this was quite the story because no one would touch a leper. But if you look at that in that previous story there in our text, Jesus came to the leper and it says he reached down and touched him, which blew people's mind because you don't touch a leper. Lepers were required to run around like this, unclean, 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 to make sure everybody knew they didn't touch them. And so I imagine that there's some people from out of town, and they're driving their Lincolns and the, maybe some town car or whatever, and, and they're parked in with all, the, all the, the pickup trucks from Podunksville in Galilee, and they're there wanting to find out what's going on. Now, these guys are not really seekers. In other words, they're not really looking to follow after Jesus. They're really skeptics. Because, yeah, I don't know about this. I heard about the leper healing. I don't, I'm not sure I buy it. i got to go see for myself. So a lot of these guys were probably skeptical about this guy, Jesus. But regardless of how they got there, this house was full. People had, had come from all over. This house probably looked like the Semred's house on Super Bowl Day. I mean... There was people parked everywhere. If you've been to one of their parties, it's like, wow, they got more parking than Walmart. Um, it's awesome. But that's probably what we were looking at. We were looking at a, a huge group of people. Wagons backed up for, down, you know, clear down the block. I want us to come to our text, and I want to read the full passage and get all of this in its gist. So if you have your Bibles... Maybe you've got your iPad or your phone that you've got the Bible on. Whatever it is you're using, please follow along with me. I'm going to read out of the NIV. But in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, it says this, One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. This is how we know that they weren't seekers, because it was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Okay, Those guys are just skeptical. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Now, I don't know how many times you've read over that verse and not thought about that. But as I was preparing for this, I'm like, that's not really kind of the direction I wanted to head in my message. But I can't just skip over that verse. We sometimes get this mindset, Jesus is God. Therefore, at all times, he had all the power of God to do whatever he wanted. The truth is, Jesus was also fully human. And it's interesting to me that it says, the power of the Lord was present. Power of the Lord, indicating God, the Father, was present for him to heal the sick. So, he relied on the Father. Just like we have to stay connected to the vine, we have to rely on the vine for our strength. Jesus, too, like us in every way, was required to rely on the Father for what he was doing. So, 
the, the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Look, pick, look back in verse 18. Some men came, carrying a paralytic on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, you are forgiven. He spoke to the man on the mat, but he saw their faith. He saw the men's faith who were on the roof, and he spoke to the man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That was his point. He wanted to know that he had authority to forgive sins. So that you know that, I tell you to the paralyzed man, take up your mat and go. Immediately, he stood up in front of them took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things this day. So here we've got this scene. And I get the picture that these are just some good old boys who care about their friend. They just, they're like, listen, I've been helping this guy for I don't know how long. I believe Jesus is the one that can fix it. And they're just some good old boys, and they want to see their friend healed. And so they gather together. Uh, I wonder, because we, we see the men and their willingness to do whatever it took, but I wonder how this paralyzed man felt. Because in that day and age... If you had any sort of debilitating disease or uh, par- you were paralyzed or you were blind, here's what the people of the world thought. Oh, you did something wrong. You were sinful or your parents were sinful and that's why you're blind or that's why you can't walk. I have this sneaking suspicion that this man on the mat, probably if it was his idea, they wouldn't have done this. I don't think it was his idea at all because... Why would you willing to go into a group of people who are going to criticize you or look down on you? Chances are good these guys just showed up at his door and said, come on, we're going. And what's he going to do? He's paralyzed. He can't run away. So they grab him and they go. It just sounds to me like a bunch of K-State fans. But, you know, I thought about that and I realized really it's not K-State fans because the real rednecks are OU fans. Um, And so... So this is probably a bunch of OU fans. They're just a bunch of rednecks. They're like, well, what do we do? They won't let us in. Well, let's see, the windows are packed, the doors are all blocked. And one guy says, I got an idea. (laughs) And you know what they do. I I, I thought, okay, I started going with this redneck thing. and And I found on the internet, there is a website where you can type your name in and it'll give you your redneck name. I thought, well, this ought to be fun. I'm, I'm trying to figure out who would I want here in this church to go with me if I was the one. So I looked up my name first. And it says my name is Duke Houston. That's my redneck name, Duke Houston. That's not so bad because I looked up Jacob's name and it says his name would be Enos Hoggreaser. <laughs> so I didn't make that up either. 
And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to type Dean's name. And I typed Dean's name in, and it, and it said he should be named Billy Ray Cornhaller. <laughs> and then I typed in Adam's name, and it says his redneck name would be Jim Bob Tucker. So here we've got Duke Houston, Enos Hoggreaser, Billy Ray Cornhaller, and Jim Bob Tucker, and they got their friend. And they're just making sure they get him to Jesus. And they, they get there, and, you know, when you put, well, even two rednecks together, one of them's always going to have an idea, okay? And I guarantee you, most times, it's not going to be a good idea. And there's usually a guy in the crowd that says, yeah, wait a minute. So, so we, we, we got Billy Ray Cornhaller over here saying, hey, boys, I got an idea. This is the plan. We're going to take him up on the roof and just bring him right down through the roof. And we, we got uh, uh, Enos Hoggreaser over there saying, I'm not sure that's the best plan. And the other guys, well, I'm not sure. No, no, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. And they, they usually always go on with whoever's the, got the loudest voice. And so they're all up on the roof now, and they are tearing up the roof. Now, can you imagine if you were sitting in that room? First of all, it was going to be hot in there anyway, so you might welcome the added little breeze that was coming through, but they just went up. These roofs weren't designed to be light. They, it wasn't like popping down a couple of these panels because the roof was designed in that day and time so that they could actually live up on that roof. So it had to be sturdy and strong. It wasn't just a, a board nailed up or a piece of sheetrock tucked to the ceiling. It was a difficult process. But the, these guys are rednecks. They don't care. Their job is to get their friend to Jesus, and they're going to do whatever it takes. So I don't know if they find some sticks or whatever. They're digging a hole in the roof. And we find them dropping him down through. But not before in verse 19 it says, when they could not find a way. They were trying to get him in. They were trying to take him in the door, trying to take him in the windows. It says when they could not find a way, that's when they resorted to the redneck plan of taking him up on the roof. What do you do when you can't find a way? What do you do when God's called you to something and you don't really know the way to accomplish it? You don't know exactly how to get past the obstacles that are in front of you. What do you do when you come across a situation and you don't know the way? These guys did not let that stop them. They were committed, and I think that is where the key lies in how you and I can find a way, is are we committed to getting our friends to Christ? These men absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, we're going to put this man in front of Jesus if they had to tear the whole roof off. And that's what they did. They were up on the roof dropping him down. What do you do? Maybe you've been given a sacred assignment of God and you've heard God speak in your life. I want you to do this, but there's opposition and you don't know how to find the way. That tenacity to keep on pushing... Find someone to walk with you. Find someone to help you figure out the way. Don't give up. And so many times, we want to bring people to Jesus if it's easy. Well, if they'll come to church with me on Sunday, that'll be good. But maybe God's calling you to step out and be a light in your job place. Beyond just inviting to church, what are you going to do when God doesn't provide just a real clear path? 
This is where our mantra comes in. We need to wreck the roof. We need to say whatever it takes. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring someone to Christ. That was what these men demonstrated, and that was what Jesus honored in his forgiveness of this man and his healing of the man. These guys were willing to do whatever it took. And that's what wreck the roof means. It means I'm willing to do whatever it takes to draw someone to Christ. If I have to give up my personal time, if I don't get to watch my show this week, if I don't get to watch the football game on Sunday, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And that's what wreck the roof is. And we need to be reminded on a regular basis that we are called to wreck the roof. We are called to do whatever it takes. We need to step up and be the men that these four men were. I want to read this story. There was a pastor by the name of Mark Buchanan. He puts it this way. He says, We are being a crowd, the crowd, when the experience of those inside the house is prioritized over the needs of those outside the house. It's when a church cares more about the things and keeping things intact than we care about restoring lives that have been shattered. It's what happens as a church when we get more upset about a mess being made than we get excited about messy people coming to be cleaned up. It's when we get more upset about stuff being broken than we get excited about broken things getting mended. It's when the church exists for itself, turns its back on those outside the house and says to hell with the rest of you. We're good to go. That's not what we want to be. We do not want to be the kind of church that says, I don't care about what happens to those people outside. Yes, it's okay for us to be concerned about one another in the body, and we need to be that. But if that overpowers us, and we stop with our compassion for those that are lost, we have lost our way. Because the church exists to bring people to Christ, to mature them in Christ, and to send them out to bring more people in. That's what we're here for. We're not here to provide a comfy atmosphere. Um, I, I remember uh, one of my college professors, Mark Scott, you know Mark Jacob, um, he said a preacher's job is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And the truth is, sometimes inside the church we get a little comfortable. Uh, and so, I'm, I'm always going to challenge you with doing the right things. And so, we, we have to imagine those people in the house. Can you imagine? I remember earlier I asked you to think about who you were in this narrative. Can you imagine these guys in the house? All of a sudden, Jesus is talking, the greatest teacher on the face of the planet, no one wants to be interrupted from that. And all of a sudden we hear noises happening up. What's going on? Did helicopter land on the roof? What's going on up there? What's, what's happening? And then all of a sudden dirt starts falling down from the ceiling and, and chunks of plaster and mud and, and sticks and, and people are dodging in the front rows because they're dropping him right down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine what was going on in these guys' minds? They were probably thinking, oh, I'm not cleaning up that mess. Uh, or they were thinking, who's going to pay for that? Um, some of them are probably rolled their eyes and said, let me guess, millennials. But I don't know if that's the case. But here's the thing. We need to, to ask ourselves, 
if I'm the one in the audience. And it's okay sometimes to be in the audience, but it's also good for us to be the one of the four that's bringing people to Christ. But when someone brings someone to Christ and you're the one in the audience, are you upset about the stuff that falls along the way? Because whenever you care for the lost, I guarantee sometimes it gets messy. Because what do lost people have? Baggage. They have baggage. they got sin that's been weighing them down for their lives. Maybe they still smoke and still chew and still go with girls that do. I don't know. But they come in with all of the junk that's been weighing them down. And sometimes we think, they're messing up the carpet. I don't know if I like what they're doing. I don't know if I like this headset. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I don't. Um, and so... So we look at them and, and sometimes we respond in a way that is judgmental and harsh instead of loving and accepting. And our goal is to be those people that even though we may not have been the one to bring this person to Christ, if we see another one doing it, we're going to cheer them on. We're not going to gripe at them for getting the carpet dirty. We're not going to talk about who's going to pay for this. We're just going to be rejoicing with them because it might be you the next time. I think one of the ways that we as a church are wrecking the roof is through what Rhonda and Dean are doing with the Orange Swan. I think that's one of the ways that we're reaching out to a community who has real genuine needs and offering them something tangible. There, there, we, have to, we have to ask ourselves, what are some other ways we can do that? We have to pursue. And it's not enough for us as a body to say, we're just going to rest on what Dean and Rhonda are doing. Yeah, we're, we're our, that's our church. We're doing that. You can't rest on that. You have, you have a responsibility, each one of us does, to be part of that person that's ra- bringing people to Jesus. I need to read you a story. A pastor very well-known pastor, went to speak to a group of people out of his local town. And while he was there, he met a man named Adam. Adam told him he had been incarcerated and that when he went into prison, he was illiterate. He didn't know how to read or write. But there was an inmate in there who was a, a follower of Jesus. And realizing that Adam was illiterate, offered to say to him, I'll teach you how to read and write. The only catch is we're only going to use the Gospel of Mark. So this inmate began to teach Adam how to read using and write using the Gospel of Mark. And by the time he was released, Adam had not only learned to read about Jesus, he'd become a follower of Jesus. He went to this small church in this small town when he got out, and he, he never asked what Adam did, and he didn't volunteer the information. So he didn't know his crimes, but somehow some of that got out. You know how it is. Sometimes people are, well, I'm going to search him. I'm going to find out what's about him because I need to know. That got out. Some of the people in the church were offended. And they, they were upset that, that he had uh, been a criminal and that he was in prison. And they were kind of upset that he was in their house. One of the families in particular, a longtime member, one of the more prominent families of the church, went to the pastor and said to the pastor, Hey, look, you either need to ask Adam to leave or we're going to leave. And the pastor explained that Adam was going to be welcome here. And if they needed to leave, they could leave. And so that family left. And then it looked like some, of the more fa- some more of the families were going to leave. And so Adam told him that he was at that time thinking, 
maybe I need to go because I don't want to create problems here and I don't want to make a mess that the pastor has to clean up. So one day when it was kind of coming to a head, it was a Sunday night and after the sermon at this small church, the pastor asked Adam to come up front. And Adam immediately knew what was going to happen. The pastor must have found out about his crimes. He's going to ask me to leave. He's going to tell everybody what I've done. And he made his way up to the front with his head held down. And he was embarrassed and ashamed about what was about to happen. And there was some in this service on a Sunday night that, I mean, they knew this was the right thing to do. They wished the pastor would handle it more privately so it would be less awkward for them. But, but it needed to happen. Adam gets to the front and the pastor says, Hey, I want the church to know that I've made an important decision. Since Adam has been released from prison, he's had a hard time finding a job, and so I wanted to offer him a job to help take care of our church facilities. And the pastor reached into his pocket and pulled out an extra set of keys to the church. And he gave those to Adam and said, I know you're going to be needing these to open the church and close the church on Sundays. And as Adam is telling the pastor his story, tears are running down his cheek. And he said, it was the first time in my life that I'd ever been given a key to anything. And he felt loved and he felt accepted for the very first time. Well, it might be well to mention that the pastor wasn't speaking at a prison. He wasn't uh, at a pastor. He was at a pastor's conference. And Adam just happened to be the pastor at that church for the last six years. We sometimes look at people and say, wow, you, you're a mess. I, I don't think we got anything for you here. Uh, you know, maybe you should go where there's some more people like you. <clears throat> God's calling us to wreck the roof. Find someone that needs Jesus and do whatever it takes and don't really care if you know someone. I know that one person in church is going to be, they're going to be upset by this. I don't care. Don't care. Don't care about that. Because God calls us to wreck the roof. And do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to bring someone to Christ. So these guys are up on the roof. Verse 20 says, When... Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, friend, and you know Jesus had to be smiling at this point. You know he's just as pleased as punch as what has happened here. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And we got Jim Bob and Billy Ray up on the roof saying, what did he say? What did he say? No, tell him he's paralyzed. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And the Pharisees and the lawyers are like, well, how do, who does he think he is? He just said he could be healed. Only God can heal. And Jesus spoke to their hearts, spoke to their thoughts, and said, you guys don't have a clue. And he says, if it, if, if it will show you that I have the ability to forgive sins, I'll, I'll heal this guy told him to take up his mat and go. And immediately he got up and walked. You know, I wish I could have been there for that. I want to be a part of stories like that. What about you? Do you want to see stories like that happen in this church where maybe someone who spent some time in prison, all of a sudden we're asking him to help out around the church because we love him. 
And let's do whatever it takes to bring people to Christ. Is there a house here where I could go where somebody's willing to wreck the roof? Do you know of someone like that who's willing to let their roof be raked, uh, wrecked? Maybe we can become that kind of a church that says, we don't care what you've done. We don't care what you did last night. Jesus is here for you today. And I say to you as we come to the end of our service, I don't know every one of you's situation. I have a general idea that most of you are followers of Jesus, but I don't really know where, what that means individually yet. I haven't got to know you well enough. So I want to tell you, if, if you've struggled in your life, and there's still that sin that you're hanging on to, I don't care that you did that last night. Jesus doesn't care that you did that last night. That maybe this morning on the way to church you fought with your wife or husband. Do you know what? Jesus doesn't care. What He wants is for you to come to Him and lay all of that down. And this morning, if you're here and you've been holding on to some stuff and maybe you haven't stepped up into what God wants because you felt, I don't know, i got some stuff I need to get cleaned up. Let's take care of that today. Let's deal with that today and say, listen... I want to start now because I know that God's calling me to wreck the roof for other people and I want to get my life right. So when we sing our invitation song this morning, if, you, if you're in that spot and you say, you know what, I've been fighting with this, I need help. Know that Jesus is always there with his hands saying, come to me. You know what he says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Maybe you've been hauling that sin around too long. Maybe it's time to let that go. Jesus says, come. Let me take that from you. And let me give you rest for your soul. I'm going to ask the, the guys to come up and sing our uh, song for conclusion. I just want to challenge you to be the kind of person that's willing to wreck the roof for Jesus. As we stand and sing this morning, if, if you have a need and you say, listen, I've been holding on to this too long, maybe you need to make that, maybe you need to make that public. Maybe you just need to talk to somebody. I'm going to be over here. If, if you just need to talk to somebody or maybe you want to make it public, I invite you to come. Jesus always had an invitation and, and his invitation was always, come to me. And so this morning, I invite you to come to Jesus. Let's stand together and Lindsay and I have a five-year-old Emma, a two-year-old Jace, and then a two-month-old Berkeley. So my evenings get full pretty fast, so uh, I decided I would get up really early on Thursday morning to write this communion meditation. Uh, but when the alarm went off, I immediately hit snooze. And then continued to hit snooze until exactly three minutes before I needed to leave for work. <laughs> While driving to work, I would have been annoyed with myself, but I was using all of my willpower to not fall asleep. I was amazed at how tired I was. Now, that's not anything new. I'm pretty accustomed to being tired, but for the first time in a long time, I decided to figure out why. So, I figured out why, and I'm going to take you through a typical night's sleep. 
I'll skip the pain of getting kids ready for bed and start with the older two actually in their beds. Now they sleep in the, in a, uh, the same bed, full-size bed in a room next to mine. So they're in bed, Lindsay is feeding Berkeley, and the time is approximately 8.15. I will spend the next hour trying to talk to Lindsay while Jace fights his sleep. After about 20 interruptions, which includes drinks of water, pleas to rock him, sing to him, tell him stories, a trip to the bathroom, and the promise that after one more airplane video, he will go to sleep, he gives up. I quickly get ready for bed, and then there's that weird dynamic between Lindsay and me, because Berkeley won't go down until about 11.30 or midnight. I don't want to look like a jerk, but I can't really feed her, and do both of us need to be tired? So... <laughs> So, much to her annoyance, uh, I excuse myself from our room, where the lights and TV are on, and I head into the kids' bedroom, where it is pitch black and quiet. My first challenge is to get both kids on one half of the bed so that I can get in there. Sounds easy, but it's not. They roll around so fast, it is almost impossible to lay down before one of them gets back in my spot. Emma rolls around the bed, gets her feet on my back, and kicks me at least a hundred times. It's constantly yelling because she needs covers, often wakes up in a panic because she needs to use the restroom, typically wakes up approximately three times just to see if it's morning time yet. Jace gets up on his knees, then falls forward and headbutts me, is constantly yelling because he does not want covers, generally wakes up at least once thinking he has spiders on his feet, and can somehow tell if anyone has their head on his new pillow. <laughs> then Berkeley wakes up a couple times, and I have to pretend to be asleep, hoping this won't be the time that Lindsay comes in and says it's my turn. And that is a no-win situation. Either you get up and deal with Berkeley, or you lay there feeling guilty about pretending to be asleep. Then at 4.30, my alarm goes off, and I get up every nine minutes for the next hour shutting it off. Berkeley is two months old now, so every morning for the last two months, I've been waking up saying this will never happen again. I'm going to fix, fix this situation immediately. Tonight is going to be different. I will finally get some rest tonight. Now, I don't plan my nights to be like that, much like I don't plan to lead a sinful life. I tell myself day after day this will be the last time I commit that sin, that, will be the, that I will fix that, only to find myself making bad choices again. I often put my needs and wants in front of others. I sometimes leave the, darkness and leave the light and choose darkness for selfish reasons. Sometimes it feels like the guilt of my past is kicking me in the back. It can really be exhausting. Like Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Thankfully, and by the grace of God, even though I continue to struggle to get it right, I have been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. He shed his blood so that I can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. When I start to feel guilty about my sinful behavior, I can remind myself of Jesus' gift of his sacrifice, which has set me free from my sins. As we come around this table, let's hand any burden of guilt we have over to him as we drink the juice which represents the blood he shed for us and as we eat the bread which represents the body that he allowed to be nailed to the cross so that sin no longer has any power over us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the chance we have to gather in your name. We pray that you would open our hearts and reveal to us anything that is keeping us from a closer relationship with you. Help us to focus on the meaning of this bread and juice. Father, we thank you for your love for us, a love so great that you sent your Son to take our place, that we may spend eternity in your presence. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Will you bow with me? God, thank you for this day, and thank you for allowing us to come together and worship. Please bless this upcoming week, and please bless this offering and allow us to use it to glorify you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.